recently I came across a commercial from a pharmaceutical company, very prominent one. And the first line of the commercial struck me very strongly. It said this, now picture this being said in a really cool, creepy pharmaceutical commercial voice, okay? At a time when things are uncertain, we turn to the most certain thing there is, science. Science can overcome diseases, create cures, and yes, beat pandemics. It has before and it will again. And then they do a great job from that point forward of making sure to thank a lot of medical professionals and people that are devoted in the scientific community to helping us out in the current situation that we're in, which is awesome. We've got world-class scientists in our church. I've got them in my family. And yet I can't help but go back to the first sentence. In times like these, we turn to the most certain thing there is. And I thought to myself, they're going to say God. They said, nope. Science. Hmm. Science helps illuminate how God works in the world. Our reason is something that God gave us as a gift from him, whether it's scientific, economic, philosophical, any other field of knowledge. Our brains are a gift from God. Science is a tremendous gift. However, along with that comes a particular certainty, and that is that it has its limits. We have diseases with no cure, even after centuries. We have frontiers of space we don't even know exist and haven't even yet been explored. Projections can be inaccurate at times. And what we thought was true scientifically is sometimes proven to be wrong down the road, whether it's the earth is flat or everything uh, revolves around the earth. Of course, the great unconquerable foe for science remains death. So while science is a friend of our faith, we must also recognize that it, it's a friend of faith who is fallible at the same time. That too is certain. So why does all this matter? Because in the world that we're living in, we can make the mistake of thinking that only science has any answers to anything, and only it can be depended on, which is really more scientism than science itself. Most scientists would freely acknowledge the limitations of it, and the more advanced the science becomes, the more questions get presented. And so it's a field of exploration, and it does reach tremendous solutions. But there are places where it ends, where there are things that are mysterious, that remain mysterious, that there is no clear-cut scientific answer for, there is no conflict between reason and faith or science and faith. They go together like chocolate and peanut butter. All Christians really should value science when it's actually being scientific, and they should cheer for it as a field of knowledge that may represent our best human way to deal with the current pandemic. But Scripture, which on its own merits has held up remarkably well over thousands of years, teaches us that there is a God and that in times like these, our reflex shouldn't necessarily be to just, you know, to, to either fight science or to just believe blindly and wholeheartedly in it. It's actually to do something different, to pray. It's to call on God. Now, that doesn't mean we don't devote ourselves to science at the same time. We can chew gum and walk at the same time. But our fundamental reflex when we're in trouble, when we're worried, when we're anxious, is really supposed to be to pray to call on God, to humble ourselves and ask for God's help. So just for today, we're going to address this question of why we pray. Why do we do this? Does it make a difference? Does it matter? What does it do in us? What does it do in the world that we're living in? 
Now, when Jesus speaks of prayer, he's adamant that what matters is not the length of time spent in prayer or the length of the prayer itself, but the state of heart of the one praying. Now, that's not a cop-out. That's actually what Jesus says. We're going to look at it today. You can open your Bibles to Luke chapter 18 as we get going this morning. Now, as we cultivate the right heart, as we become more and more like Jesus, the right prayer will come after it. Because a heart that is right toward God will hunger and thirst for fellowship with God. And that really is the crux of what prayer is. Prayer is listening to God and it's talking to God and it's practicing the presence of God. And so today, I'd like us to take a very brief look at four ways that prayer impacts us. Four reasons, if you will, why we pray. Next week, we're going to start a new series on the spiritual disciplines and we're going to come back to prayer in that series as well. But today, we're just going to look at some major teachings of the Bible on prayer, and I hope it blesses you this morning. First of all, prayer humbles us. In Luke chapter 18, verses 9 to 14, I want to read this story, but it really sets the table and forms the foundation for the Bible's teachings on prayer. Here's the story. To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. That's quite the way to introduce the parable, isn't it? Verse 10, two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other to tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, robbers and evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and I give a tenth of all I get. Verse 13, but the tax collector stood at a distance. He wouldn't even look up to heaven, but he beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God, for all who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. So here's what we learn from Jesus just right off the top, that our prayers really provide a window into our souls. At least in part, what we pray can be a reflection of who we are. Now, that may seem a little bit uncomfortable for us because we work so hard to, you know, to, to be open, but it doesn't seem to bother Jesus. We can't make our prayers pure simply by using the right words because prayer is far more than that. Jesus says it is out of the heart that the mouth speaks, and so he's implying in this story that it's out of the heart that the mouth prays. So it's not the words themselves, but what the words represent in the story that give us insight into our prayers. So when you pray, or when I pray, the posture with which we pray, the ego, the swagger with which we pray, matters to God and can give us a wonderful insight into what's really going on in here. Jesus illustrates a state of heart by letting us listen in on these prayers, and as we listen, we can almost hear Jesus praying for us, praying that God might keep us from, from arrogance or, and grant us humble hearts. Prayer restores order, if you will, by humbling us. Just as we see in that story there in Luke chapter 18, there's a humbling process to that if righteous prayer is taking place. So on the one hand, you have a guy who is so proud that he just looks over and he thinks that the goal of prayer is to almost validate or to prove his righteousness, whereas the other sees it for what it is, a radical restoration of order. God on the throne sinner at his feet, asking for help. So in prayer, God is on the throne 
and we are not. It's the way it is anyways every day of the week, but it heightens our awareness of that reality. And if we've gotten a little higher up than we should be, prayer has a way of humbling us and restoring things to the rightful order. God begins to exalt us at that point of humility. As the scriptures say, humble yourself in the sight of the Lord and he will lift you up. Prayer itself, just in the very act of prayer, cultivates humility in our hearts. I remember once uh, I was in a classroom, mostly of other pastors. Some of them were um, people who were trying to be scholars. It was in my doctoral program on spirituality, and we were looking at some different forms of prayer. And so there was a moment where we all went into the chapel there at the university we were at, and we prayed this simple prayer, and we prayed it for 10 solid minutes, okay? One line over and over and over again. Tell me if it sounds familiar. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And we just said it over and over and over and over and over and over. And as we kept saying it over and over, the strangest things began to happen. We became more uh, aware of the grandeur of God, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, Okay, that puts God up in his rightful spot. Have mercy on me, a sinner. And repeating that for several minutes, I mean, it was a breathtaking exercise in prayer, but what it did was it humbled us and put things in their rightful order. It helps me see the world the way it actually is, not the way I wish it were. And in that moment of humbling, God does a mighty work in us. See, here's the truth. People who pray very little, are likely to struggle with pride. They will struggle with pride because they rarely experience the spiritual clarity, the worship, the uh, dependence on God that prayer offers us. Prayer humbles us. God meets us there and then exalts the humble. And so this is what Jesus says will happen in verse 14. Everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. The one who humbles himself will be exalted. Or I love the way Eugene Peterson puts it in the message. He writes, if you walk around with your nose in the air, you're going to end up flat on your face. But if you're content to be simply yourself, you will become more than yourself. This is true. God has a way of humbling people who think too highly of themselves, particularly in the spiritual realm. God has a way of bringing very strong-willed, barrel-chested churches and people to their knees, remembering that when it's all been said and done, each one of us, even the best person among us, is still only but a sinner saved by grace. Every church, no matter how successful, is nothing more than God has made it. Prayer is not a contest. Among many things, it is a window into our souls. Prayer is something we should aspire to, but we must aspire to pray the way that Jesus teaches us to here, and he is ready to do so. Secondly, prayer brings God near. Now, what I mean by that is not that God ever left. It's that it, it brings God near to us in the way that we feel. For the Christian, uh, the true source of anxiety in the world we're living in is actually a sense that one of several things has happened. One is that maybe God is mad at us, he's not paying attention, or that he's helpless. Okay, now, each of those things causes anxiety for the same reason that God seems at the moment to be far away. 
We don't feel his nearness. We don't feel his proximity. But speaking for myself, I can go through almost anything if I know that God is with me. If I know God is close, if I can sense God's presence at hand, I, can, I feel like I can take on the world. I feel like no matter what goes on, it's going to be okay. But if I don't and I feel that distance then here comes the anxiety, or here comes the, the worry, or here comes the frustration, or here comes the, I don't know what's going on. You may have noticed when those of you who have kids, or maybe you've observed this on your own if you don't have kids, but when you take a young child, like a baby or an infant, or maybe a toddler, and the first time that they're dropped off in childcare at a, you know, a nursery or, or someplace where there's childcare, they flip out. They are terrified, and it's not because you know, they really don't think that their mom or dad is alive anymore. It's that they don't know where they are. They don't know where their mom or dad is. It's not because they're hurt. It's because they don't sense the proximity of their parent. And we're the same way. We get anxious when we don't sense God's presence. But prayer makes us stronger by drawing us nearer to God. It lowers our anxiety by nature the fact that we get close to our Heavenly Father. We don't feel like we've been dropped off in the great nursery we call earth here, and he's gone, but that he's near and he's at hand. One verse I love to this effect is Psalms 145, verse 18. It says, the Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. Let me read that again. The Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. Third, prayer trains our reflexes. What happens when you first start to worry about something? When something big happens in your life, whether it's good, bad, or ugly, where do you go first? What's your first impulse? Is it to pat yourself on the back? Is it to shrug it off? Is it to, to do whatever? When, when something really bad is going on, where's your first move? What's your reflex, if you will? In James chapter 5, James says this. He gives us a sense of where our reflex ought to be. He says, is anyone among you in trouble? Let them pray. Is anyone happy? Let them sing songs of praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let them call the elders of the church to pray over them and anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well and the Lord will raise them up. If they've sinned, they will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of the righteous person is powerful and effective. He's saying, look, if you're in trouble, pray. No matter what's going on, no matter what's going on in your life, the right response is prayer. If you're in trouble, pray. If you're happy, sing, which is basically prayer set to music. If you're sick, get the elders, more like righteous people, to anoint you with oil and pray for you. No matter the occasion, the reflex is prayerful. It seems so self-evident that it almost seems wrong, but man, is it right. And lastly, number four. Prayer is powerful and effective. It actually does something to stir heaven, to move the hand of God. 1 John chapter 5, verses 4 to 15 says this, This is the confidence we have in approaching God, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have what we've asked, asked of him. 
Imagine you were a soccer player, a really good soccer player, and you've led your country to the World Cup final game. All you do now is you've got to make a single penalty kick, and it's all yours. You win the whole thing. You remember sports? You remember when we had those? Picture yourself in the World Cup. Now, the odds are in your favor if you're making a penalty kick. Roughly 75% of penalty kicks at the elite level are successful. That's pretty good. Three out of four. Pretty good odds. My chances are looking pretty good. Because of the speed of travel of the ball, which is about 80 miles an hour in that kind of elite soccer, the goalie and how close you are, the goalie really has to make an educated guess as to where they think you're going to kick the ball if they're going to try and block it. They don't have a chance to actually see where you're going to kick it because by that point, the time they recognize it, the ball's already by them. So they have to tell, based on a variety of factors, where they think you're going to kick the ball and just go for it. The best shot is a kick toward the corner of the goal with enough force that the keeper can't make the save, even if they guess correctly. But, you know, you're talking about a very narrow corner of the goal. The chances of you kicking it directly into that spot are not particularly good. So maybe you'd want to ease up just a little bit or aim a little bit away from the corner, even though that gives the goalkeeper a little bit of a better chance of stopping the ball. You might also then need to choose which corner. It's going to be the left corner or the right corner. Now, if you're a right-footed kicker, as most people are, then your left is your strong side. So that translates to power and accuracy. If you go to your strong side, you're going to be more accurate and going to be able to generate more power. But, of course, the goalkeeper knows that too, so the chances of them picking that are also higher. So they tend to jump toward the strong side 57% of the time and 41% of the time to the other side. Hmm. I wonder what my best chance is then. Now remember, the goalkeepers, what the chances are here, 57-41, they're going to go to your strong side. They stay in the middle, just meaning they don't really move, two times out of 100. So a leaping goalkeeper may, of course, still stop a ball aimed right in the middle. But how often does that happen? How often does somebody kick the ball right down the middle? Think about this. According to all the people who study these sorts of things, a kick toward the center, as risky as it might seem, is actually seven percentage points more likely to succeed than any other kind of kick to the corner. You heard that right. You have a better chance of success kicking the ball straight at the goalie than to the corner. Now, while that has the highest chance of success, only 17% of kicks are actually aimed there. Why so few? I'll give you a guess. Shame. The fear of shame. I mean, imagine the World Cup is on the line, and you get a chance to make one kick, one final kick, and you decide, I'm just going to kick it right at the goalie, and the goalie doesn't move, and it just goes right into their hands. Well, what then? So in your mind, you can mathematically know that that's actually your best chance. But people don't pick it. And they don't pick it because they think it would be embarrassing for them to kick it right at the guy and have him just stand there. And so that fear of shame means that people would prefer to miss more often in the corner than they would to make the goal in the middle. Sometimes going right down the middle is actually the boldest move of them all. So, sometimes I would argue that the reason we don't think to pray 
is because it seems too simple. It seems too easy. It seems like something, uh, like a duh kind of thing. And if the first move that we make is to pray rather than grasp for something else as we go, and it doesn't work or doesn't get the right solution, then we feel stupid. And especially when you live in a world that tells you you might be foolish for praying. So it comes down to a set of core convictions and what is it that I want my reflex to become? Do I want my reflex to be to call on the name of the living God, which at that moment will humble me, it will test my heart, it will put things in their proper perspective, it will make my reflexes, spiritually speaking, much stronger, they will potentially move the hand of God in the heavens. Do I want to start there or do I want to start by trying something else that I can do on my own, that I think I can do on my own? Well, it's not that doing something is wrong. And in fact, prayer is by no means any excuse. It's not a crutch. It's not an excuse for not taking the actions that we know we're supposed to take. But what it does do is it helps ensure that the person who's taking those actions is a much humbler person than they would be otherwise. And we might just be surprised at some of the solutions we would come up with if we would take the time to ask God for help. So again, there's no divorce between doing and praying. Those are false dichotomies. But the reflex, that first impulse to pray is what Scripture really calls us to. Is any one of you in trouble? They should pray. Is any one of you in trouble? They should pray. Is any one of you in trouble? They should pray. And then when we pray, we don't pray like the Pharisee who looks down on others saying, thank you, God, I'm not like that person. That's not what prayer is for. Prayer is for us to sit at the throne of God, to experience fellowship with God, to experience the nearness of God, and then to give him the opportunity to move or direct us to take action. And so this morning, as far as why we pray, we just looked at four reasons. There are a lot more than that. But may it be said of us in this time that we're living in that, you know, some may trust in chariots and some in horses, but we will trust in the name of the Lord our God. And as we do, there's nothing wrong with horses and chariots when you're going into battle. But we don't trust in those ultimately. We trust here, and then we're going to take our actions in life, the way that we handle ourselves, uh, based on what we see in the Word of God and how we handle ourselves there at his feet. You can find the Lord's Prayer in Matthew chapter 6, verses 9 to 13. Jesus says, and this will be our prayer as we gather around the table this morning. This then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.